Thanks, Francis. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. Um, I am reading to you this morning from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, And make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and the tendons and flesh appeared on them and the skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope has gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word this morning and as we reflect on it together, I pray that you would speak to us, God. You'd open our hearts. And uh, for each and every single one of us here and, and, uh, and at home, that the word that you would want to shape us with and form us with and renew and revive us with would enter the depths of our being. Lord, when you, when you simply spoke at the beginning, life was formed. And so, Lord, breathe your breath of life into us as you speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, Give me one second. There we go. I'll find it eventually. Okay.
So on August 27, 1883, a volcanic explosion uh, in Indonesia, 10,000 times more powerful the size, uh, than, than an, uh, the atomic bomb, sent shockwaves across the world. Anyone remember it? No, I don't think there's anyone quite that old here. 1883. Uh, it, it was heard in Bangkok, Manila. It was even heard in Perth. Fire brigades were called as far away as North America. Uh, people thought it was the end of the world because the skies went red, all sorts of phenomena. The, this blast killed 36,000 people, destroying three quarters of the island of Krakatoa. And uh, what was left behind, as you can imagine, was something that in biblical times uh, uh, would, would have been described as a wilderness, right? Not a desert as such, uh, but a place where life ceased to and just could not exist. Um, barren and desolate and void of life, full of just destruction. Uh, one commentator described wilderness as, in short, lacking everything. Not just lacking water or food or people, lacking everything, barren, void of life. And we're in a series um, called Ways in the Wilderness about uh, how God uses these times, these experiences that we face, these wilderness seasons, um, and how God works in them um, because they do come, they're part of our lives. Over the last few weeks, I've spoken about the fact that the wilderness uh, is, according to Deuteronomy and what God spoke in that book, uh, to humble, teach, and test us. And actually, we can't handle it. Only Jesus can. Um, that our way of self-protection in these challenging spaces is to build strongholds, but ultimately they crumble. Uh, and thirdly, there's a number of often hard lessons that we learn over a lifetime of these challenging seasons. All really encouraging stuff. Not. <laughs> it's difficult. This is not a fun theme to explore. Uh, I didn't pick it because it's fun and enjoyable, but because it's an important one. To walk with Christ is to take up your cross. And if we gloss over that, we remake Christ in our image, as opposed to the other way around, remaking uh, to, to let us be formed into the image of Christ. That said, while we need humbling and testing and teaching in our faith, wilderness seasons that produce this are actually essential, we also need hope, right? And thankfully, God's a God of hope. And one of the primary things God wants to do, I think, and I believe from reading the scriptures, in a wilderness experience, one of the primary things he wants to do is bring renewal, life. To renew us, revive us, breathe life back into us. Um, I, I still don't consider today to be a, a, a fun sermon, particularly. Um, but I'm hoping I can point to the real purpose and the hope in the midst of tough and dry seasons so that we can make choices that allow God to do the good thing he's trying to do in those places. Uh, put your hand up if you've read the Old Testament the whole thing. Few people, keep your hand up. If you read the Old Testament, okay, keep your hand up. If after reading it all the way through, you really grasp the overall narrative and how one event leads to the next, how it ties together, and you understand what it all means. Yeah, I didn't think so. It's confusing. 
And the Old Testament, this collection of, of, of writings, is nothing like a, a well-laid-out chronological novel that's easy to track. It assumes we know a whole heap of uh, historical context, a whole heap of cont- cultural context. And a disclaimer, I'm not even close to an Old Testament scholar who really had their head, has their head around the whole thing and how it all fits together. But Personally, I'm, I'm beginning to understand portions of the history of Israel and how various people in that narrative, the key, key players, how they intersect. And that just comes from reading and observing, slowly piecing things together. Please believe me when I say that my theological studies, my degree had very little to do with helping me grasp God's master plan. Um, actually reading the Bible is what does that, and maybe it's just because I was in my 20s, but I didn't do a lot of actually reading the Bible when I was supposedly studying it. Um, it's just reading it, and I, I want to encourage you, if you've tried before and, and you've struggled to get through some of the scriptures, try again, go slower. Bible in one year is great, but for me at the moment it's too much. My current pace is probably something like Bible in 3.7 years, Right? One or two chapters a day, maybe. Go slow, read it. Start to see the connections and how it all fits together and what God would say through that. One period in this history of the Old Testament that's fascinated me in recent uh, weeks and months is the period leading up to the Babylonian exile. So we're talking about 600 years before Jesus. So this is getting sort of towards the end of the the Old Testament uh, history and the journey of the people of Israel over those few thousand years. Now, again, I'm no scholar, but here's my understanding of at least bits of it. And um, there'll be a little bit of a summary timeline on on the screen. Um, After the people of God split into two kingdoms, right? So there was the the Jewish people, Israel, but they, they broke up. This was after Solomon. They went... One group went north, one group went south. We tend to refer to them as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah. Northern kingdom descends into evil and is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a brutal, horrible uh, group of uh, uh, a nation who did stuff that was that you couldn't even mention in church, like horrible, horrible, evil things they did to the, their captors. Um, So northern kingdom is taken into captivity by Assyrians. And at the time of Isaiah the prophet, and we studied him a few years ago, I really enjoyed that, Uh, there's this king, Hezekiah, and he uh, is leading the southern kingdom, as said, called Judah, and he trusts God for the most part. And when the Assyrians, who took the northern kingdom, come and are at Judah's doorstep, um, uh, Hezekiah trusts God, And his simple trust in God saves them. Uh, The angel comes and takes out 185,000 Assyrians overnight. Later, a little bit down the track, Hezekiah makes a bad mistake. He's done well, but then the Babylonians come. They're another rising nation. Seemingly friendly at this point. And he's like, hey, come, welcome, Babylonians. Look at all of our stuff. Which is a bad idea. And it's basically pride setting in. Isaiah, the prophet at the time, challenges, points this out in Hezekiah, in Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and says, you shouldn't have done that. In those days, kings had one responsibility under God, 
right there to govern and lead the people. Prophets had another responsibility. They were like a mouthpiece and both were needed. They needed to have a godly king and, 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 and obedient prophets. And so this, this was happening, but Isaiah has to come challenge Hezekiah. Now, next generation, Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, is just pure evil. Pagan religion, including in the temple, and there's, there's prostitution, there's child sacrifice, all in the name of, of worship. You know, it's just absolutely horrible. And obviously things go bad. His grandson, thankfully, so Hezekiah's great-grandson is good news. One of my favorite people of all time, Josiah, name my son after him. He brings reform. And gets, gets rid of all the shrines and poles and demonic stuff. And, but again, while kings had one responsibility under God, prophets had another. Josiah was obedient to play his part, but so was Jeremiah, a prophet of that time. And Jeremiah tried to tell, for years, tried to tell the people, look, worship in the temple, that's been restored and renewed under Josiah. Yes, the bad stuff's been cleared out, but what about your hearts? Josiah's reforms were essential, but to an extent, it just pushed some of the evil stuff out to the margins. Some of it was in the forest, places where people could could continue their rebellion against God in the shadows. So it's sort of like, come to temple on Saturday, praise God, praise God. But then the same destructive lives the rest of the week. In a similar way that in a sort of just a Christianized culture, you get, come to church on Sunday, praise God, praise God, but it doesn't affect our lives the rest of the week. And this leads to exile. Exile for the people was like a wilderness. Now, it wasn't uh, that they were out in a literal desert like a few thousand years before with Moses after the Exodus, but it's the same kind of humbling and testing. What happened in exile? Well, firstly, they're disconnected from each other. The Babylonians come, remember this is the ones who were friendly before and Hezekiah's like, look at all that stuff. Now they come back and they, took, they take all the people with skills and leadership and status and they ship them off to Babylon in the north. Others, the ones the Babylonians figured had no capacity to revolt or push back, they stayed at home in the land of Israel, in like around Jerusalem. And there they lack freedom. There's a puppet king in place at home unfamiliar culture and unfamiliar ways for those who went off to Babylon. They're disconnected from each other, disconnected from God, tradition, land. For people connected to land and temple and God's promises and to each other, this is rough. It's not a nice experience, but it's all for a purpose. They've got to come back to God and his ways. They're being humbled. And it doesn't happen quickly. The Jews are in Babylon and are like, surely God won't let this happen to us too long. We don't deserve this after all. And God speaks to Jeremiah. Even as other prophets come in, it literally was in my reading this morning, I'm I'm journeying through Jeremiah and and I read this, this other prophet, uh, I forgot his name now because he's not one of the ones that you read about much in the Bible, and he's trying to go for the positivity approach. God says that in two years' time, Nebuchadnezzar will be overthrown and it'll be all back to normal. Jeremiah's like, look, I wish it would happen. But God speaks to him and says, no, 70 years. So you're going to have to settle here for those who have been shipped off to exile. 
You have to settle. You have to build gardens. You have to provide for yourself. Settle in. Learn the culture because this is where you're going to be now. Back in Jerusalem, the ones who were left behind, anyone know what they did? Hey, guys, let's just bail while we can. Let's go to Egypt. Egypt is predictable, measured, right? The religion, the social hierarchy, it's comfortable. We won't be that high up on the chain of of, of society, but we'll at least know what to expect. Let's just go there. Well, that doesn't go very well. Leads to the temple being destroyed in Jerusalem, and they've got to stay anyway. So it's, it's not a good experience. This is very much a wilderness experience for the people of God. And, you know, the northern kingdom's already gone, dissipated. What's going to happen now? Is this the end? Is this the end of God's people through whom he's promised the blessing of the whole world? Then we start to see some hope. Some prophets are raised up in exile, in captivity, right? Like Daniel, a young boy at the time of Josiah's reforms. What a faith. You know, he's going to be thrown into the fire and the lions. My God will save me. But even if he doesn't, I will still obey him. And then prophets like Ezekiel, who we read from earlier, on a par with Moses when it comes to how powerfully and miraculously God worked through him and declaring hope. This is what your God will do to restore you back to the life you were made for. Think of this picture of life into dry bones. And this is the point I want to make today, that God's grand purposes in the wildernesses that sometimes go far longer than we want and are sometimes far more painful than we think we can handle. His purpose is to bring about wonderful renewal, a renewal of life, renewal of our relationship to him and to each other. To get us to a point where we say, God, we're in trouble. We need you. A point where we realize that the life we thought was good and vibrant because we included God in it, but just when convenient. That life only leads to disappointment and pain and death. Just listen again to the hope Ezekiel speaks to a people group of people, a nation of people who now realize they actually have no life left in them. Then he said to me, son of man, bearing in mind that the picture that's been painted, a valley of dry bones, right? Lifeless. And then the breath of life breathed into them and they become a mighty army. He said to me, son of man, these bones, yep, next slide, are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. That's what the people are saying now. This is, this is where we're at. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. And so the images, imagery is so powerful. Lifeless, dry bones, are literally a wilderness. This is where they're at personally, emotionally. Spiritually dry, cut off, lifeless, dead. And that is the place of renewal. That is the place of revival. Death is the thing that brings life. Now they're not actually there yet. Remember Ezekiel is saying this is what's going to happen. Remember this is what God says he will do. But it provides hope. 
And it paints a vivid picture of something so critical that when you and I finally realize that all we've got is God, all we've got is God, then and only then can he breathe life into us. And, of course, this, this alludes to the Garden of Eden. The man was, was lifeless dust, and God breathed life into him. It's a reminder we only have life when it comes from the one who gives life. That's the only thing. He's the only one who can give us life. And so a wilderness experience, a testing, a humbling, a, 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 a teaching, whilst hard and it might even be excruciating, is what God will use to get us back to a place where we can then actually become really alive. And what is real life? Scripture says this is real life. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Now, of course, it's all pointing to the death of Jesus, which would pave the way to the spirit of God being poured out. And when we choose, as we spoke about earlier, death to self, we receive real life by his spirit. We keep running to Egypt. We get nowhere. We get to the end of ourselves, like those in Babylon. There's no hope. We need God. His grace is sufficient and he gives us new life. Now the beauty of this grace is that it's instantaneous, right? There's no purgatory. There's no paying for our sins over time and okay, now you're clean enough. He simply saves us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Uh, Just this week, um, my daughter Abby was a bit sick and... um, so we had some rough nights uh, early in the week and one, uh, she's nine months old by the way for those who don't know and one night after a few hours I, I was like, okay, I'll take one for the team, tried to sleep in her room on the floor. She was waking up every 10 or 15 minutes for I don't know how long. So it was something o'clock and um, she's crying, crying, crying and I'm like, yeah. yeah. I thought, you know what, I'll try praying. Don't know I didn't think of that earlier um, but so be it. So I prayed out loud, God, please calm her spirit. Just help her settle. I kid you not, within about 1.7 seconds, boom, she'd laid down, completely calm, not a sound, straight to sleep. I just kept praying just in case. Like, okay, it seems to have worked. Well, I, you know, I, I just, no, she was gone, like really gone. And I felt like God was saying in that moment, this is what my grace is like. There's no waiting period. There's no making, up, making it up to me in between. Purgatory for your sins. When people come to me, I restore like that. Some of you need to hear that today and just run straight to Jesus with your sins and receive his grace, whether it be for the first time or just again after a time of going, I've been wandering. On the other hand, we then have to ask the question, all right, instantaneous grace but why is there 40 year wilderness journeys and 70 year exile experiences in the old testament demonstrating that there's an ongoing long-term humbling process leading to renewal is this just a pre-jesus thing but now we've got the golden ticket i don't think so i think we too need the kind of renewal revival the spirit breathed into us that ezekiel described even as saved people and we have to wrestle with this tension both personally and corporately i'm not saying there's anything more needed for salvation than to come to jesus and say i trust my life to you that's it instantaneous but personally and then corporately as well to become this army fully alive described in the image that the prophet ezekiel paints what does that take 
If it's more than just a prayer and an instantaneous response of God. I want to point us back to these people involved in the history leading up to the, this picture that Ezekiel points to of dry bones coming to life. Because I think this is part of the answer. Well, what does it take to get to this revival and real, real renewal in the people of God? Fully alive. These, these people, Isaiah and Hezekiah, Josiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. These guys didn't see the kind of revival or renewal of God's people that they longed for and fought for. They didn't see it. Some of them pointed to it, but they experienced disappointment as their brothers and sisters continued to turn away from God. But what they did with their lives was plant seeds. And this is where renewal starts, with seeds. Ezekiel's picture of a valley of dry, lifeless bones becoming an army of God filled with the Spirit, a nation, a people fully alive by the Spirit of God. This would be fulfilled because of the prayers of Hezekiah as the brutal Assyrians threatened to decimate his people, because of the uncomfortable challenges that Isaiah delivered to Hezekiah when pride crept in. Revival would come because a teenage king, Josiah, upon finding the scroll of Deuteronomy, chose to restore God's ways in the land. Revival would come because of the obedience of a prophet, Jeremiah, constantly warning the people to turn back to God despite him feeling alone and rejected and ridiculed and jailed. Revival would come because of young men like Daniel, who grew up under Josiah's reforms, choosing to obey God even in in exile, even if God didn't save him when he said yes to God and no to other customs. And yet all their decisions, all their prayers, all their obedience to God were seeds which birthed trees they would never sit under the shade of. Renewal starts with seeds, but seeds take time to grow. But this is an opportunity for us when we find ourselves in the wilderness. Plant the seeds that will lead to personal renewal and revival of the people of God. The choices made in faith that don't bear fruit today or tomorrow, but will bear fruit down the track or even generations down the track for other people. Remembering that a seed smaller than the size of our thumbnail, it's not just that it produces another seed, but a tree millions of times the size, if not billions. Seeds that lead to life renewal. I struggle to believe, if I'm honest, I struggle to believe that 30 minutes in silent prayer and scripture will significantly impact my kids, my ministry, my relationships with non-Christians. One you know, short period of time in the day. I just, is it really going to make a difference? But yes, it does. I struggle to believe that replacing Netflix with content that helps me understand the way of Jesus in books will substantially lead to great peace in my heart and in my home. I struggle to believe that in the moment, but it does. It will. I struggle to believe that sending a few people to start a church in a developing uh, area with no building and minimal resources and just a calling and a vision, that somehow that, this journey that we're on, will lead to the transformation of our communities, which is part of our ridiculous vision statement. But it will. Slowly and surely, it actually will, because all of these things are seeds planted 
if we're faithful to plant them, God will grow. In 1883, Krakatoa decimated three quarters of the island, completely eradicated, a wilderness as a result. But years later, as people went to explore that wilderness that was left behind on the island of Krakatoa, they found what? Life. Growth. Small at first, but over time, a whole ecosystem of green, lush plants and wildlife. And if you go on Google Earth now, you'll see it. It's green. Because after that volcano, what looked like death was actually soil ready to sprout new life. And as birds flew across carrying seeds, presumably in their droppings, the seeds found soil, good soil, and new life began. If you're in a wilderness season, this may be an opportunity to plant seeds that you'd never think to plant when life is, quote, going well. What seeds are you planting in your family? What seeds are you planting in your relationship with God? What seeds are you planting in your children or your marriage? I I talk to so many older people who have regrets about time not spent with their kids. Without the seeds, they don't taste the fruit. Some of you may feel that way, but if you're alive and breathing, it's not too late. What about in your walk with God? What regrets might you have 20 years down the track because of seeds not planted now? Your marriage, your other relationships. And beyond just the personal, right, seeds for our own lives, what seeds could you be planting that lead not just to personal renewal but revival in the church? Deeper walks with others, greater commitment to corporate prayer. These are all acts, whatever it is, whatever comes to mind for you, I'm not going to prescribe it. These are all acts of laying our lives down, getting to that point of death to self. God wants to raise, I believe, God wants to raise a mighty army, like that one in the prophecy we read this morning. It's just that he doesn't create it out of strong, capable warriors. He creates it out of bones. People who say, God, we've got nothing except you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that whatever season we find ourselves in, a season of abundance or a season of wilderness, we would not look at it and say, how can we make a life for ourselves? But we would look at it and say, God, yeah, we've got nothing, no hope. We're cut off, we're dry, we're lifeless. And so come and revive us. Come and renew us. We choose to plant seeds in faith that will bear life and renewal in the long term. Let's just take a moment before the team lead us in worship to sit in silence with God and just to ask him, what are those seeds that he's calling us to plant in our lives and in the lives of others in this season?